Well, good morning. It's really good to be able to continue our series in Genesis. And it would be great if you could have your Bibles open in front of you as we look at this passage together. This morning, we're going to continue to look at a passage about dreams. Now, today, as it was back in Joseph's times, dreams were uh, dreams are mostly innocuous. Many are bizarre. Some are funny. Others scary. Some are, to be quite frank, a little bit freaky. So I remember a few years back, um, it was the night before we were to have a 12-week scan for one of the boys, and both Liz and myself had exactly the same dream that we were having twins. It was a freaky coincidence. Um, We'd had that dream that night uh, before the same big event. Um, And I have to admit, I I was just a little bit disappointed that there was only one heartbeat on the scan. I was absolutely certain and convinced our dreams weren't coincidental. Mind you, it could have meant um, that the child we were about to have would be such hard work, it would make us feel like we were having twins. That's another story. Let me move on. Um, Like most dreams, although freaky, the dreams that Liz and I had weren't significant. But in our passage this morning, we read of another couple of dreams that came from God. It's a pattern that's been running through this whole narrative so far. The dreams come in pairs and Joseph at every at every point is on hand to interpret them for people who needed to hear from God. We've seen that with Joseph's brothers and with the baker and the cupbearer, with the incidents In our passage, it's no different. Pharaoh has two troubling dreams from God. And God sends Joseph to interpret those dreams for him. Why do we need to read and hear about this passage today? Well, it's because God is still speaking to our world. Not normally through dreams, although sometimes that happens. Today, God speaks through the person of Jesus. Our world is almost as ignorant as, um, as, as Pharaoh's was of God. And yet God has revealed his word in Jesus and uses his people to speak his word into the right place at the right time. Just like we see that happening in our passage this morning. So as we go through our passage, I hope we'll be reminded that in God's wisdom, the process of revelation involves God speaking and his servants being there to explain his word and to show how to respond to his word. And in seeing that, I hope we're stunned and amazed at God's revelation to this world, as well as challenged and encouraged that God uses his servants today to spread his word just as he did back in Joseph's time. And that brings us to our first point this morning. Our passage shows us that we're to trust that God is revealing himself through his word. Trust that God is revealing himself through his word. Well, 13 years before the events in our passage, um, Joseph had arrived in Egypt as a 17-year-old slave. Essentially, by the time our passage starts, 20 years have passed. He spent his his twenties his, his in slavery, in a dungeons. And every time, just when it seemed as though he'd caught a break and his fortunes were turning, his hopes were dashed. Three times, 
Joseph had to endure deep disappointment. His brothers had sold him into slavery. His former master's wife had accused him falsely and had him imprisoned. And the cupbearer to the king, whom, had, whom he had helped, had forgotten about him. Two years had passed since Joseph had asked the cupbearer to take his case before the pharaoh of Egypt and nothing had come of it. So from Joseph's point of view, it must have felt like the last chance of redemption from his situation in jail had passed. And then we're told Pharaoh has a dream. Look with me at verse 17. Pharaoh says this, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them... Seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. Now, now the Hebrew phrase here describing the leanness of the cows literally means evil in appearance. It was a dark nightmare, evil cows killing and dismembering and gorging on the flesh of, of what once were beautiful Jersey heifers. And what was worse was that at the end of this cannibalistic nightmare, the evil beasts were still as evil and skinny as when they started. It's like something out of a zombie apocalypse movie. And then just to ram, the home, ram, ram home that point, Pharaoh wakes up, he goes back to sleep and God sends another dream. This time, the same message in a different format, one about heads of corn. Why was this so troubling to Pharaoh? Well, it's because the dreams are so laden with symbolism. The seven evil cattle emerge out of the Nile. Now, cows were not merely typical farm animals in ancient Egypt. Instead, they symbolised Egypt. The Egyptian mythology was that Egypt originated from the god Isis, who emerged out of a supernatural water like the Nile. Also, their god Isis was depicted as a cow. She was the mother of the god called Horus, and Pharaoh was considered to be Horus incarnate. On top of this, seven was an Egyptian sacred number symbolising fate. In other words, this was going to happen. So there are layers upon layers of powerful symbolism for Pharaoh in this dream. It's as though God is grabbing Pharaoh's attention. It's a message from God. This can't be ignored, Pharaoh. And that's why Pharaoh gets together the Egyptian equivalent of the Hogwarts staff room for an explanation. But look how, they, how well they do in verse 24. Pharaoh says to, 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 to Joseph, I told this to the magicians. But none of them could explain it to me. In spite of everything, Pharaoh is left troubled. He's confused. And then the unlikely happens. In the middle of the turmoil, the cupbearer speaks and tells Pharaoh his story. His voice is the voice of hope as he tells Pharaoh about a young Hebrew man who was able to interpret dreams like the one Pharaoh had just had. And this is all as just a subtle reminder that God is in control. That God was waiting for this moment. 
he's not responding to actions and reactions like he's playing some celestial chess game with fate or chance. No, God is controlling all these events. That's what the writer wants us to see and what the writer wants us to be amazed about because God is the one who brings all these dreams together at the right time. God makes sure that Joseph is in the right jail at the right time. God caused the cupbearer to forget Joseph's kindness till this point. God made Pharaoh remember his dreams. God reminds the cupbearer of Joseph at this moment and Pharaoh ends up begging to see Joseph because Joseph can interpret his dreams. It's a demonstration of how God both reveals himself through his word and prepares the listener to receive his word. God has brought his word in both the dream and Joseph's interpretation to Pharaoh's world, a world that had no knowledge of God. And it's a reminder to the reader that God's purpose for the whole world is that one day the world will see him and one day the world will know him and one day the world will love him. So it's no accident that those of us who are Christians have heard the good news about Jesus and we have believed in it and we have trusted in it. Why? Because we've all heard the good news and God has revealed that great gospel news to us. God put godly Christians in our way. God made them share his word with us. Some of us, yes, might have been born to parents who are believers, but that is no accident. That is God sharing his word and bringing godly parents to us. You know, others have had miraculous circumstances that bring us into contact with the gospel. I, I love it. One of our church members recently came into contact with the gospel because a sudden cloudburst hit the Caterham Carnival three years ago. And she and her daughter took refuge in the marquee that Oak Hall Church had up that day. And then ordinary Oak Hall Church people took the time to share their lives and more of the story of Jesus with her. God is revealing himself to this world today, just as he was revealing himself to Pharaoh's world in Pharaoh's day. And that's his promised plan. And you know, it means that Christians watching this can be so confident that even though our circumstances might be horrendously difficult, we, we might be losing our jobs or, or even loved ones, we might be wondering where God is in the midst of the turmoil that we're seeing today in our world, but we can read this story again and be reminded that God is putting us in the right places at the right time with the right circumstances so that this world might see him and know him personally, because that is God's purpose and plan today. And I love it. That is happening all over the world today, everywhere in the world. God is preparing people to listen to the gospel message of Jesus's death, his resurrection and his coming again. And everywhere in the world, God is preparing ordinary believers to share the gospel with people whom God has prepared. It might not seem like it with our non-Christian family and friends. It might feel a bit like Joseph in the jail, a total dead end. But let's be patient with God. I remember when I was a schools worker, I had a conversation with a teenager about grace. I distinctly remember doing a bad job of it. 
I, I actually remember walking away from the conversation quite dejected over the way over the way that I'd communicated grace. And yet, ten years later, I met that lad again. He was training to be a minister, and he remembered our conversation well and quite fondly, because it was a starting point on his journey to understanding the true and fullest love of God revealed by his grace. In other words, this passage teaches us to trust that God is revealing himself through his word, miraculously, wonderfully and powerfully. But that brings us to our our second point this morning, which is that we're to trust that God's word is powerful. Trust that God's word is powerful. We have to see how those years in prison has matured Joseph's character even more. Do you know, listen, listen to how he replies to Pharaoh's demand for an interpretation in verse 16. It says this, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. It's the words of a humble man whose faith and character have been carefully shaped by God. He's not going to manipulate circumstances to his own benefit. Instead, Joseph submits to God's word and glory. Joseph says, this is God's power at work, not mine. And he he explains the dream to Pharaoh. He proclaims the character of God as well. Look at verse 28 with me. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. It's amazing how the circumstances that have hit Pharaoh have exposed the limit of of his theology, the limit of his power, exposed the limit of his knowledge and understanding. He was meant to be a God. He was the most powerful man in the known world and yet he's so limited and that point is rammed home by the fact that God chooses to reveal himself through the faithful words of the lowliest slave from the darkest dungeons in the kingdom isn't that crazy isn't that amazing that God chooses to do it that way the lowest man speaks to the the highest man about God's purposes And as well as giving the interpretation about the approaching famine and the years of plenty which were to precede it, Joseph is bold enough and caring enough to give advice as to what to do about it in verses 33 to 36. And let's not imagine that when Joseph said, look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt, that Joseph was subtly lining himself up for the job. We've got to be clear here, nobody, including Joseph, imagined that Pharaoh should think about appointing a young foreign convict to run the country. But that's what God has in mind. God had that planned from the very beginning, and it happens. 
Verse 37 says this, Joseph's plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. It's unanimous. Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? There's something different about Joseph. And it's not just different, it's obviously God's hand upon him, working and filling him with wisdom and knowledge and revelation. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God had made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Doesn't that blow our minds? In the time it took for one conversation, Joseph finds himself second only to Pharaoh in what was then the most powerful kingdom in the world. It's a testimony to the power of God's word to change nations and peoples and minds and thoughts and ways and powers and superpowers on a sixpence. And because of this testimony, it reminds us that God's word is the most powerful force at work in the world today. And we might ask, well, I don't see that. Why don't I see that? And the simple answer is that in spite of our Western world, never having seen so many Bibles printed, well, never has our Western world seen so few Bibles read. The whole reason why the centre of Christian growth and power globally is shifting towards Africa is because African churches are opening their Bibles and reading their Bibles and believing and believing it and telling people about what's in it. African Christians are hungry to know what the Bible says. And I know we're so far back from that. I know we struggle to read our Bibles. But let's read this passage again and again and again. Let's see this testimony of Joseph and understand how powerfully God's word changes us and this world. And perhaps we might commit to creating a habit of a lifetime. To every day, opening our Bibles, reading our Bibles. Why? Because God's word is the most powerful force at work in the world today and by it he is powerfully changing us and the people around us. Do you know that leads us to the next point this morning which is this, see God's grace being revealed. See God's grace being revealed. Do you know as the passage comes to an end We see God's grace really clearly in a couple of ways. We see it first when we look back at how God prepared Joseph for this role. God humbled Joseph so that Joseph was robust enough to trust God when the hardest of hits came. God built Joseph up and vindicated him to the highest place of authority in the land. And because God's hand was on Joseph, the power didn't go to his head. Look at what he calls his children. It's wonderful. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim. And said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. In other words, Joseph counted his blessings. 
He gives his children Jewish names, not Egyptian names. And their names reflect his heartfelt relationship with God. Manasseh's name is a public witness to God's favour upon God's children, even in difficult times, troubled times. And Ephraim reminds Joseph of God's faithfulness and, and, and of God's fruitfulness, even in difficult times. And by giving his children these names, Joseph recognises that God doesn't need to do this for Egypt or for the world. And yet God still does do this for Egypt and the world. He saves the world from famine because of his grace and his love for them. And we see God's grace at work, secondly, in the way that God stamps his mark on all these events. I don't know whether you've noticed, but everything happens in this story has either been said twice or is doubled up in some way. Joseph has two dreams. His brothers had two different plans. Joseph has experienced two waves of temptation. He has experienced two humiliations, thrown into the pit and thrown into jail, and two promotions, one by Potiphar and one by Pharaoh. There are two dreams in jail and two interpretations. Pharaoh had two dreams and, and, and two attempts at cracking the code. There are two twos everywhere, even two sons. As one writer puts it, it's as if God's feet are marching through the whole of this story, tramp, 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 so that we're not to miss the message that God's purpose is fixed and we'd better get used to that fact. God in his grace is determined to work out his plan of salvation in spite of us and not because of us. And therefore it's humbling to see how this passage shows us God's grace, God's plan, God's ways, God's sovereign hand on everything so that he can one day save the world from sin. Do you know the last thing that this passage points us to is a saviour and that's our, our last point this, this morning. God's word points to a saviour. What I love about this story so far is that right through it, a greater picture emerges. One that helps us see Jesus's great work of salvation. It's kind of like the shadow of a hero in a Western movie, that as it falls in front of the, the hero, as the camera focuses on the shadow, it tells us a bit about the character, but not the whole picture, till the right time comes, and then it pans onto the character. In the same way, this story of Joseph is like a foreshadowing of the greater saviour, Jesus, who would one day be revealed. So like Joseph, but greater, Jesus is a humble servant who is rejected by his brothers and taken from the humblest of places and exalted above everyone in the world. And like Joseph, but greater, Jesus is accused and punished for sin he never committed. And like Joseph, but in a greater way, Jesus is vindicated, proved innocent of guilt. That on that first Easter Sunday day, as Jesus rose from the tomb, he was elevated out of the darkest pit of hell and declared right and perfect on that day. Perfect in glory and power and might. He was vindicated. And like Joseph... But better than far, but, but better by far, Jesus comes into this world that doesn't know God 
And in the fullest and greatest and most compassionate and loving way, he reveals God's salvation to us. He reveals God's word to us miraculously and powerfully and sovereignly. And like Joseph, but in a greater and fuller way, Jesus saves. He saves this world not from a famine of food, but from a famine of forgiveness. And like Joseph, but more powerfully, Jesus is filled with the spirit of God as he ministers and shares God's word. And like Joseph, but in a deeper and richer way, Jesus, although despised and rejected by men, he forgives those who rejected him. And like Joseph, but more perfectly, Jesus hears God's word. Jesus understands God's words. Jesus wisely obeys it for the glory of God. And like Joseph, but more wonderfully, all who trust in Jesus and sit at his feet as his children are called Manasseh, are called Ephraim, because they will one day forget the trouble of their father's household and they will one day be fruitful in eternity. Revelation 7 verse 7 says this, for the lamb, Jesus, is at the centre of the throne and he will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is our saviour. This is our God. Wonderfully, powerfully, gloriously revealing his purposes, his plan of salvation, his saviour to this lost and dark world. And as he does so, he calls his people to follow him and to be used by him to do that for his glory. He calls us to sit at the feet of our greater Joseph and enjoy the benefits of Manasseh and enjoy the privileges of Ephraim to rest at his feet as his children, forgetting our troubles and rejoicing in fruitfulness for his kingdom and his glory. Here is our God, revealing, saving, powerfully and wonderfully. Let's pray together now as we reflect on these things. Oh, Father God, we praise you for your word. We remember how powerful it is, how glorious it is, how wonderful it is that we can open your word day by day by day by day and know that our God speaks to us by it. Oh, Father God, open our eyes to that privilege. Open our hearts to be prepared to receive your word each time we go to it. Father God, create in us, I pray, a hunger for it. Just like, favor, uh, just like Pharaoh begged Joseph to, to, to tell him about God's word, may we be like Pharaoh and beg Jesus to tell us and reveal to us the wonders of your word. Oh, Father God, we praise you for the blessings that you've lavished upon us through Jesus. We pray, Lord God, that we would never underrate your blessings, never scorn your privileges, that we are your children. We are a Manasseh, 
We forget the trouble of our households. We are Ephraim. God has made us fruitful. One day we will sit down at the feet of Jesus and proclaim those truths to their fullest extent because we will be with him in eternity. Lord God, bless us by your word this morning. Change us, I pray, just as you changed Pharaoh, just as you changed billions of people ever since. By your word, may we powerfully May we powerfully be moulded by it. In your name. Amen.